Scott Demarest is here. Um, but before he comes up, we are going to go over our disciplines. So let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beauty of a very, very cold morning and for giving us warm clothes and heated houses. <laughs> um, thank you, Father, for bringing us here together this morning. Just another opportunity to remind ourselves of the truth that is in your word and the importance of being in your word. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning, that you would um, grow a sensitivity and a love and a desire to be in your word, to, to yearn, to hear what you have to say, to find out more about you. God, it is such a, a beautiful gift to us. Thank you for Scott this morning coming to teach us. In your name, amen. So um, the, Scott, the lesson that Scott is teaching this morning is focused primarily on discipline one. Um, but we know our disciplines don't stand alone. So I'm going to review all of them together this morning so that we can be reminded of two and three as well. So um, go ahead and get your notebook out or however you have your disciplines. And we are going to read the purpose. So the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And our verse, which Jacob taught so wonderfully last time we met together, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. All right, and then discipline one. Does someone want to read discipline one for us? Thanks, Alexa. Awesome. Thank you. Does anyone want to do number two? Thanks, Chris. Awesome. Thank you. And number three? Does someone want? Thanks. With a heart fixed on God and seeking her God given ministry of giving her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Awesome. Thank you. So this morning, I want to talk just for a few minutes about Discipline 2, um, particularly the second part of Discipline 2. So go ahead and look at that. Um, it says, with her heart fixed on God and his word. So this means that the voices that we're listening to, the input that we're having, needs to be God's and not the world's. So go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. Um, we're going to spend really short time in 1 Timothy, just one quick verse. Um, first Timothy, we're going to be in chapter one. So I know I've used this illustration before, but I think it's really poignant and, and helpful to understand. So, um, L'Oreal, the makeup company, um, they have an ad slogan. I don't know if they still have it, but they did at one point. And the ad slogan said, because you're worth it. So let's read first Timothy one verse 15 and let's see. This is Paul talking. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's a pretty far cry from what L'Oreal is telling us, right? Seeing ourselves for who we truly are, we're sinners in desperate need of grace, will lead us to only one thing, which is humility. So 
sorry, L'Oreal, we're not worth it. <laughs> we're not worthy of salvation. We're not lovely. We're worthy of punishment, and we're worthy of eternal separation from God. But God, right? He stepped in. And in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of us being at our worst when we were hating him, he loved us. And that type of humility-fueled thinking creates in our heart a spirit of meekness. Meekness is not a word that's talked about a whole lot, so I'll explain what it is. Meekness is a gentle quietness. So it's characteristic of a woman who sees herself as an undeserving sinner, and then only then will we be able to minister to those in our home in a way that pleases the Lord. So we all know that sanctification is a process, right? Um, and we desire, if we desire to be meek women, we must cultivate that spirit of meekness and gentleness. It doesn't just happen automatically. There's no shortcuts to godliness. It's day in, and it's day out, and it's humbling ourselves, and it's shepherding our hearts. Um, Nancy DeMoss has a ministry called Revive Our Hearts, and she has a list of questions that can be really helpful to ask ourselves to kind of gauge where we're at in our discipline to put on meekness. So I'm gonna read these questions out loud. Um, feel free to answer them inside your heads if you would like. Are you easily provoked? Do you quickly get annoyed or irritated when circumstances displease you? Do you have a tendency to fly off the handle? Do you have a short fuse? Do you get angry easily? Do you lash out at your children when they blow it? Are you often impatient with others who don't perform at your level of expectation or who don't show up on time or who are not as conscientious as you are? Do you find yourself being impatient with your friends or maybe with your kids' friends or maybe with your friends' kids? <laughs> Do you have a critical spirit? Do you often find yourself resentful of people or circumstances that cross you? Are you controlling? Do you have to get the last word? Does it have to go your way? Are you mouthy and loud? Are you quick to speak? Do you tend to be outspoken? Are you stubborn? Do you dig in your heels, have to have the final word? Do you have to be right? Are you quick to correct others, to point out their mistakes and their failures and their flaws? Do you have what you would call a perfectionistic spirit? Are you demanding, argumentative, temperamental, or defensive when criticized? So the first step to ministering to those in our home with our spirit of meekness that we're trying to put on is to be honest about where we're not meek. We really can't rationalize our behavior by saying like, it's just my personality, or but you do not understand my husband or my children or my roommate. And if you're not sure of the answers to any of these questions, maybe try asking someone that you live with, see what they think. Ouch. So after we fight to put off our lack of meekness, we need to put on a spirit of gratefulness and of humility to never get over the wonder of where God saved us from. And it's really hard to get offended or bent out of shape over the sins of others if we're seeing our own need through humble eyes. So, ask God for meekness, beg him to change you into the woman, the wife, the mother, the daughter, the sister, or the friend that you need to be, so that you can minister to those in your home faithfully, as our disciplines say. And, as always, we know that our ability to minister to those in our home starts with our time in God's word, which we're going to learn a lot about today.
So listen to this quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Purge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. So let's discipline ourselves to not listen to the voices of the world, the ones that say you're worth it, or you deserve me time, or have it your way. I think that's like McDonald's or Burger King or something. But instead, we want to listen to and read and meditate and memorize the word of God, because that's how we'll be able to faithfully shepherd our hearts, right, and care for those in our homes and minister to others in the church. So let's pray, and then Scott will come up. Father God, I do pray that you work in all of our hearts and create in our hearts humility, realizing that our salvation is a gift from you. We have done nothing to merit it. We have done nothing to deserve it. You alone have given us the greatest gift of salvation because of how great you are, because you saw us in our need and you saved us. I pray that you would create that kind of humility in our hearts as we seek to care for those in our home, particularly over this Christmas season, when we may be around more family for an extended period of time. God, that we would seek to serve others before ourselves, that we would see our need to repent of our own sin and to not be so easily offended by the sins of others, but to love them and forgive. Thank you, Father, for this morning. In your name, amen. That was great. Thanks, Melissa. That was really, really good. First thing I want to do is to just thank you all for being here. Um, Grace Bible Church is a better church when people come together and they fellowship together and they learn together and they grow together and they encourage together. So thank you for coming. I truly pray that this is a time that's really helpful to you. This is actually one of the funnest things that I get to do as an elder is to come and teach Wellspring. Uh, it was a joy for me to do it for many years. Uh, I led Build for three years. And uh, what I found when I was leading Build was I really missed being able to teach Wellspring once or twice a year. This is really fun. I really enjoy it. So I hope it's a blessing to you. And what we're going to be talking about today is honoring God in our Bible reading. So uh, get your Bibles out and get them ready. We're going to jump around quite a bit today. Um, God's Word is our source of authority in everything we do, so um, we're going to be using it quite a bit. Uh, have you ever had your words misconstrued or misunderstood by somebody? Perhaps it was by a friend, maybe even by an authority figure or somebody in your church. Have you ever been quoted by somebody and found yourself thinking or saying, that was not at all what I meant when I said that? And then that person takes some form of action based on their broken understanding of your words and the situation kind of deteriorates. Um, if that's how we feel when people do that with our words, then shouldn't we be careful with how we handle God's word to us? Uh, today we're going to look at how we can honor the Lord when our Bibles are open and we are alone with God. Uh, but one of the most important steps we can take is to prepare our hearts for the intake of his word. Heart preparation is essential because only a soft, tender, well-conditioned heart 
is sensitive to Scripture's authority over our lives. So we're going to spend some time this morning talking about preparing our heart to deal with God's Word before we actually talk about dealing with God's Word. And if I'm not speaking loud enough, somebody in the back just, just point like this and I'll, I'll crank it up a little bit. So the first thing we're going to talk about is, is how we prepare our heart for reading God's Word. First thing I want to talk about is when we're preparing our heart is it's really important to agree with God about His nature. Scripture is His revelation of Himself to us, so it's important that we understand about God's nature. So whether you're starting your day or ending your day with God's Word or you're taking advantage of nap time with your kids for your, um, to meet with God, this is important. And there's two things we really want to be looking at today that that inform us a little bit about God. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, if you turn there, we're going to be looking at God's holiness. God's holiness is the singular defining character and characteristic of who God is. The scene here is God's throne room in heaven. There are four living creatures that are gathered around the throne. They surround the throne. These creatures are highly intelligent, and they are highly perceptive, And they are not compromised in any way by sin. And this is what they say. The four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy. That's what they say. God's holiness relates to the degree that he is separate from us. And he's separate from us as well as from the rest of all of his creation. And primarily he is separate from us as it relates to moral purity. But he's also separate from us as it relates to his eternality of his being, his power, his wisdom, his vengeance, his mercy, his kindness, his love. It goes on and on. So when we're meeting with God, it's really good for us to say, Lord, you are so set apart from me. Your ways are so different from me. I desperately need help in understanding and comprehending and coming to grips with your revelation of yourself. So if I just sit down and start reading my Bible, I'm going to be missing the whole point of why it is that I gather to meet with the Lord. So please help me in this time alone with you. I desperately need your help to comprehend you in all of your holiness. The second characteristic that's really good for us to remember and keep in mind when we are preparing ourselves to meet with God over his word is his glory. That's the other primary defining characteristic of God is his glory. Psalm 19 is a really good place to go if you want to acquaint yourself with God's glory. You read the the psalm and uh, first it tells about God's Revelation in creation, and then the second half of the psalm tells about God's word, and all of it relates to his glory. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So God's glory, you've probably heard this before, especially if you've heard Scott Maxwell teach. His glory relates to his weightiness or his impressiveness. God is very, very impressive in his nature. His substance, he's massive, just in his content of who he is. 
The words I am going to read are revealing a God whose nature is weighty. So we ask God and we beg with God, please grant me an appropriate sobriety and discernment as I read your Bible. So we want to be preparing our hearts for what kind of God that scripture is revealing. Second thing we want to do when we get ready to encounter God in the pages of scripture is to remind ourselves of the truth about God's word. We want to agree with God about his word. And to do that, we're going to look at two passages. We're going to be looking at John 17, and we're going to be looking um, at Hebrews chapter 4. The context in John 17 is Jesus is sitting down, and he's with his disciples, and he is hours before his arrest and his crucifixion. Uh, He has not yet gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on his own, uh, but he is praying with the disciples, most likely in the upper room. And they are going to go about the task of establishing the church on their own without him. And he knows that, and they're just coming to terms with that fact. But they need sanctified lives to do that. So Jesus is praying with them, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Here the Son of God is telling us that there is one source of sanctification for us, and that's his word. So we come before God to be sanctified by the truth of his word. We agree with God that his word is truth and that that is what sanctifies us. The other thing that's really, really impressive and really helpful about God's word is we need to agree with God that his word gives us insight into ourselves. And so we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 here. The author of Hebrews is is writing to a a Hebrew audience. They are Christians uh, for the most part. And these people are in a very hard place. They are coming out of Judaism. They are coming out of a system where it's a broken system. It's a system that's designed to put all of the emphasis and the attention on the Pharisees and the religious leaders and none of the attention on God himself. And so they're kind of foreigners and they're left out by the religious system that they're in and they're left out by the cultural system of the Romans that are in in Jerusalem, occupying Jerusalem. So they're in a hard place. And they really need truth, and they really need honesty, and they really need integrity as they examine themselves. And the place they're going to find that is by using God's word to tell them about themselves. So the author of Hebrews writes, The word of God is living, and it's active, and it's sharp. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And then at the end, we see the fourth thing, that the attribute about God's word, is that God's word is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. God's word is the accurate yardstick. It's the accurate measure of our hearts. In chapter 4, the the author of Hebrews is helping his writing audience understand that the Jew is unable to enter into God's rest due to disobedience and unbelief. And so the message for us here is that Scripture is what reveals our true condition to us when we read it. So when we're, we're getting ready to read God's word, we need to pray and say, Lord, would you please use your word to reveal to me my true condition before you today? I need to understand this. Lord, through your word, show me where I have a fondness for the things of this world rather than for you. Show me where I have weak affections for you. Show me where I am believing lies that I should not believe. Show me these things through your word. Use your word to inform me of where are my affections, my thinking, 
All of those things are broken. It's very helpful for me when I, I encounter God through his word to remind myself about what God's word tells me about myself. So it's good to agree with God about your own nature. First, the nature that you formerly had, and now we're going to look at the nature that you currently have. So when we look about our former condition, we, we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The first three verses of this passage are very, very helpful in us to us for understanding the kind of person that we used to be. And this, this passage is describing a very active lifestyle. It's describing intentionality of the person. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's really good for us to admit, Lord, in my former condition, I was unresponsive to spiritual truth. I was dead. I was spiritually dead. And I function the same manner as everybody else in this fallen world around me. Whatever sin appealed to me, I ran after it. Whether it was the things I did, the things I thought, the things I said, the affections that I held, I had no ability, I had no interest in responding to the authority of your precious holy word. I never did. That is who I used to be, but is not who I am today. I'm so thankful this is not who I am today. It's really good to agree with God about your current condition. We remember the gospel of what God did. He sent his son. He sent his son to live a perfect life so he could be a perfect substitute. And he could take the place on the cross of everybody who had put their trust in him. And he would bear their sin in his body. In our case, 20 centuries before we actually lived out that sin, he bore it in his body. And he satisfied God's wrath against every single one of those things. It's good for us to remember that that is how we now live in a mixed condition because of what Christ did for us. So we remind ourselves about our, our mixed condition. And for that, we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 5. This is really good. Because what has happened is Christ has satisfied God's wrath against us for all of the, sin, the offense that our sin is against him. Um, but we live in a mixed condition today. Now, did you guys start your Wellspring year with a, a description of the God's transformation of man, the blue notebook, or the blue pamphlet? Yeah. Okay, it's really important. One of the big takeaways from that is in the center section, over here on the left, you have, over here on the left, you have man's former condition. In the center, you have man's current condition. And on the right, you have man's future condition. Um, in our current condition, we are in a mixed condition. And one of the passages that helps us understand that is Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. My flesh, the residual sin that still lurks within me, is opposed to the things that the Holy Spirit is working in my life. So it's really good to agree with God that one part of me is actually opposed to another part of me. And right now, there is a battle that's taking place inside of me. Even as I'm sitting on my chair in front of my Bible, there's a battle taking place inside of me. There really is. So it's imperative that I fill my mind with the truth of Scripture so that I'm equipped to fight that battle well, right? 
So we agree with God that we're in a mixed condition and we desperately need his word to inform us of how we should live. But because we're in a mixed condition, because of what Christ did, Christ finished and satisfied the wrath of God on the cross, but he also entered into death. He entered into death so that he could conquer death and he could conquer the sin that was the cause of that death. And we find that passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Here what we're going to see is what the benefit is to the believer because of what Christ did in his resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 6 describes the new relationship that the Christian has to their sin. If you think back to your former life before Christ, sin ruled over you. It had authority over you. It controlled you. You were held captive by the enemy to do his will. Romans chapter 6 tells us that the Christian has a new relationship to sin, namely that, that sin has been dethroned as the authority or the power of your life. Paul writes in verse 4, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Christ's resurrection from the dead conquered death and the sin that was the cause of that death. So sin is no longer in the position of master over the Christian. I actually have the ability to walk in newness of life. So Lord, would you please use this time in your word to fortify me with truth and that that truth might influence me away from the sin that still appeals to me. I have to tell you in my own life, sin really appeals to me. It really does. And I need the truth of God's word to help me with that. And finally, it's really good to agree with God about why it is that you're sitting there reading your Bible. Why am I actually doing this? I'm not doing this because this is the next thing to do on my reading plan. Although reading plans are great, we're going to talk about that in a bit. Um, we're not doing this to, first and foremost, equip ourselves. We're doing this for really two reasons. One is to bring glory to God. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Um, there are lots and lots of ways in, we bring, in which we bring glory to God. Philippians 1 lists one of them. Paul's writing to a church that he had already established. This is a church that was up and running. They were doing pretty well. He writes and he says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. The overarching purpose of our lives, if you look at the very end of that passage, is that we bring glory to the Lord. Back up to the beginning of the passage, you can see that this passage is talking about an abounding love that we have for one another. It's talking about discernment that we use in living out an excellent life. It's talking about a fruitful, righteous life that we lead before the world around us. We do all of those things so that we can bring glory to God in all that we do. So God, please grant me your grace in the reading of Scripture, a reading that informs me as to what is right and what is good, that is so different from the world. Grant me to be doing this for your glory as I read, first and foremost. You're here to worship God. You're here to give glory to him as you read your Bible. The other thing we want to be doing is we want to be looking at something that's a little bit more on a personal level to us. And that is we want to be pleasing to Christ. Second Corinthians 5, the, the, the subject here is Christ and who he is and what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home, in eternity, 
are here and absent, we have to be pleasing with him, pleasing to him. The one to whom we are to be pleasing is Jesus. And my aim is to be pleasing to Jesus in the reading of God's word. So good heart preparation is essential to a fruitful time in God's word. The way to be pleasing to the Lord when we meet alone with him is to use self-control when you're actually reading your Bible. So what we're going to look at today are eight different ways in which we can use self-control when we're reading our Bibles. Self-control is really important when we're reading our Bibles. It actually requires a lot of effort to do, but it is so fruitful. It is so beneficial. I truly have found that to be true in my own life, and I pray that it's true in your lives as well. The first way we want to make sure that we're using self-control when we read a Bible is we want to expect that any passage has a single meaning. So when was the last time you communicated so as not to be understood? When was the last time you were trying to make a point to somebody and you intended two equally valid meanings from what you said? I hope that's not what I'm doing right now. I really hope it's not what I'm doing right now. So uh, let's say you have three kids and you gave them all the same clear instruction at the same time. They're all sitting right there and they're listening to the same clear instruction at the same time. Their ears are working, their minds are working, everything's going well. Would you consider it reasonable and right for each one of your own kids to come to their own unique conclusion as to what it is that you meant? Absolutely not, right? You meant the same thing to all three of them with the same words. And how well would your household function if you allowed your kids to assign their own preferred meaning to your words? This is what I think you meant, so this is what I'll do. The same thing happens to the church when we do that with God's word. It really does. So it's essential. The implications are are pretty long-standing and pretty far-reaching when we read God's word. Language is God's gift to us. God gave language to us to enable clear communication with one another. And clear communication with a single meaning is part of God's holy character. So we're going to see that in Isaiah 45. So let's go to Isaiah 45. The context here is that God is hammering away at Israel, that he is the one, he is the only, he is the true God. Again and again, God tells Israel in this portion of Isaiah, I and I alone am God. This is what he says in verse 18. We're going to start in the middle of the verse and go through verse 19. God says, I am Yahweh and there is no one else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, And I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are right. That's what God says. He says, I speak righteousness. The one thing that sets God apart about his communication, you can see it at the end of verse 19, is that God tells us that he speaks righteousness. Something that is righteous is something that is right. It's perfect and it's without error. And one characteristic of righteous speech is that it is clear. Righteous speech in no way is confusing or vague or uncertain. God's telling us this. He's saying my communication is righteous. There's nothing missing. There's nothing confusing in any of my communication. And so when I speak, I speak with one meaning. So what we need to see today is that clear communication flows out of God's holy character. 
So when we're reading a passage, whether it's a passage of the Old Testament or an old, a passage in the New Testament, we think about God's holy character and the clarity with which he speaks. The other thing we need to understand about a passage having one meaning is that clear communication is essential for obedience. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 29. The setting here is the second giving of the law. Israel is perched on entry into the promised land. They're on the, the east side of the Jordan. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. So they, they get the law delivered to them again the second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. This is the, the generation that's going to enter into the promised land. This is a different generation, the ones who got the, the first giving of the law back in Exodus 20. Moses has described all of God's holy character for 29 chapters. God turns the corner and he says, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever so that we may follow all the words of this law. So God communicated his law to Israel. But the expectation that he put on Israel to obey his law required and demanded that his communication of that law be clear. You can't obey something that's not clearly understood. So the reason God can expect obedience from us is the meaning of the words that he uses to give his commands to us is clear. The meaning is clear. So when you're reading a passage in your Bible, just remind yourself that that passage has one and only one meaning. And plead with God to make that, that meaning clear to you and understood. God gave you, God gave us, God gave every believer his Holy Spirit. And that is what enables us to understand divine truth. So just agree with God that you need his help to understand the one meaning of a passage. Second thing that's really important when we're looking at God's word and using self-control in his word is that we use the normal use of words and language. And to do that, we read our Bible left to right. We read it with a literal, a grammatical, and a historical perspective. So we're going to look in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bible, turn to page one of the Gospel of John. To take something literally means to take the words at their literal meaning as often as the occasion warrants it. And in the very first verse of John's Gospel, we get an exercise in how to do that. What does God say? He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's some very clear, straightforward things we understand. We understand that there was a beginning, and that at that time, at that point in the beginning, there was a Word, and that Word already was with God. And that word already was God. Very clear language, very clear understanding. Normal interpretation of that word means that there's something that's already in place at the beginning. And that thing that's already in place is the word. And what God does here is he makes an association. He makes an association between himself and communication. And he uses his very name to do that. My name is the Word. And what that does is that helps you understand that I am a communicating God. Jump ahead a few verses to chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Word that existed at the beginning, that Word that existed with God at the beginning, and that Word that already was God at the beginning, 
became flesh. It took on human form and lived on earth with mankind. That's the straightforward reading of that verse that tells us everything we need to know about who Christ is and how he got here. He took on human flesh. If you want the details of that, you can read Luke's gospel account of how it is that the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she came to be with child. But here we see that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Sometimes scripture uses metaphors. A metaphor is a figure of speech that refers directly to one thing by mentioning another. So let's jump ahead to John chapter 10 and we'll get a look at Jesus and how he uses a metaphor. But when we're looking at metaphors, it's really important for us to understand that even in the use of metaphors, it's, it's still helpful to use the literal meaning as a guide to your interpretation of what's happening. You know what's happening in John 10. Jesus is explaining more of his character. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here, Jesus is describing himself, and he describes himself by mentioning a door. We all know what a door is. It's a thing that you enter through and you come out of. The literal meaning of a door helps us to understand that Jesus is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven that he's referring to as you read on in the verse. It's also helpful to use grammar in your understanding of scripture. Just use regular, straightforward, simple grammar when you're, when you're reading scripture and it really helps you. To see that, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Paul has spent three chapters in, in his letter to the church in Ephesus explaining how it is that God saves and the majesty and the wisdom and the goodness and the rightness of God's design for salvation. He spends the last three chapters explaining how it is that people are to respond to that. And he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every word of doctrine. This is verse 14. By the trickery of the people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There are an awful lot of words in that sentence, aren't there? And what I've got here is, is, is a lot of words. What we're going to do is look at something very carefully in verse 14. We're going to look at something carefully in verse 15 and verse 16, and we're just going to use the rules of grammar to help us understand this. Look at verse 14. The thrust of verse 14 is that we are no longer to be children. You see that. We are no longer to be children. The rest of the verse describes what kind of children we are no longer to be, tossed here and there by waves, carried about by the trickery, by craftiness, deceitful scheming. So the thrust of verse 14 is we are no longer to be children. The thrust of verse 15 is what type of children we are to be. We are to be, um, we are to grow up into him. We are to be children who grow up into him. And how do we do this? We do this by speaking the truth in love. So when you look at verse 15, it makes sense as you put it, place it right next to verse 14. Verse 14 says, here's what you're not to be. Verse 15 says, here's what you are to be. And the author is clear. He tells us all the things that characterize which we're not to be. He tells you the things that characterize what you are to be. You're to be speaking the truth in love. And in verse 16, he talks about how that actually fleshes itself out. If you look at verse 16, you see the subject at the beginning of the verse, the body, the whole body. 
If you look at verse 16, you see the verb at the end of the verse, go all the way to the end, and it says, causes the growth. That's the verb in the sentence. And the direct object is of the body. So the body causes the growth of the body. All the words in between tell how that growth actually takes place. It does this by being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That's what you are doing today by being here. That's what I'm doing with you today by being here. And it tells you that there's a proper working of each individual part so that each one of us has a role to play in the building up of one another. And when we function like that, the body causes the growth of the body. And the end result and the end aim in all of that is to build one another up in love. So use rules of grammar, just simple grammar. Look for the subject, look for the verb, look for words of transition, look for words of inclusion, and look for words of contradiction, but, all kinds of things like that. So grammar really helps you in understanding the meaning of Scripture. The last thing we want to think about in this aspect is historical context in which the letter was written. The Bible was written by more than 30 authors. More than 30 men penned Scripture. And it was written over a course of 1,500 years. Scripture was written from different countries, from different continents, different centuries, different millennia. So ask yourself some basic questions. What do you know about the author? And what do you know about the audience? What do you know about the setting? It might be helpful to actually consult some sort of a study Bible or some sort of good reference for helpful background information before you read the book you're reading. Uh, right now in the Discipleship Journal, the, the reading plan that my wife and I use, we just got done with one of the books in the, in the Minor Prophets. We just got done with Micah. And it's really helpful to understand that the Micah sits right next to Jonah in left to right as you read your Bible, but it also comes right after Jonah chronologically. So Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and he preaches a message. And by God's grace, there's wholesale conversion in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is an Assyrian city. It's a large, powerful Assyrian city. And that generation was changed for the gospel by the message of Jonah. These are Gentiles. Micah is written a couple of generations later, about 50 years later. And in that, God is talking about the nation of Assyria. By this time, that last generation that, would, that believed is long gone. And Assyria has become a very powerful, very pagan nation. And that is the nation that God is going to use to chastise and actually lead the northern kingdom into exile. So it's really important when you read that it's just helpful to read and understand where things sit in time. So next time you're reading the book of Micah, understand that this is the other side of the coin to what happened in Jonah. The third thing is it's really good to observe your passage before you try to interpret it and figure out what it means. So often we run ahead by, by trying to interpret and say, well, what does this mean? What does it mean? I don't know. I don't know. But here's a, here's a tip. Interpretation gets much, much easier the more observations you make. So look at the placement of the book in the Bible you're reading. Where does this book sit in the Bible? Why is it there? When was it written? Uh, who is it written to? What kind of genre is it? Is it wisdom literature? Is it an Old Testament narrative? Is it prophecy? Is it a letter to a church? Is it a story about how the church itself was established in Acts? Or does it describe the, ends of the, the end times of this age? Just ask yourself good questions about that. And ask yourself, why was the book written? And again, it's good to consult some kind of useful reference for that. A lot of Bibles have um, 
some of that forefront and formatter at the beginning of a chapter. Sometimes it's actually helpful to read that and, and read, and it helps you understand what's, what's taking place. It's also good to look at the pieces of the book that you're reading. When you're in a passage, you're reading 15, 20 verses, 10 verses, whatever. It's good to ask yourself, what was being said right before that? And what is being said right after that? The author has a flow of thought. It's really helpful to ask yourself that. Ask yourself, what do you think is the main point of the passage you're reading? You've got a lot of text in the passage. But again, the author has one point. He has one main point and lots of supporting points to, to support that main point. You need to understand the difference between interpretation and application. We want to be comfortable in our interpretation before we run after an application. We want to understand what it means before we understand what to do. Interpretation and application are like two runners in a relay race. You really want to get the first one completed before you start thinking about what to do with the next one. Interpretation is understanding the true intention of the author, the one correct intention. And the application are the various ways that a person lives in light of the one meaning of that interpretation. So there's many possible applications to one interpretation, one correct interpretation. Both interpretation and application are needing when you meet with the Lord over his word. Lord, what is it that you mean by what you're, you're having me read this morning? That's interpretation. Then application is, Lord, what do I do because of that? Don't obtain an accurate interpretation and quit there. Uh, there's no point in understanding the meaning of Scripture if you're not going to apply it to your life. On the other side of the same coin, don't execute the application before arriving at a good application. There's no point in, in trying to live out an application that's based on a faulty interpretation. So we want to do that. Sometimes when we're reading our, our Bibles, it's good to remember that we're in that mixed condition. And so the fifth point is really helpful. Entrust yourself to God's wisdom. God's wisdom is above mine. We're going to look at Isaiah 55. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. God gets to decide what is right. God is the final authority on what is good. So don't let your emotions rule over your assessment of God's word. Don't let your emotions rule during your Bible reading. Instead, let God's word be a guide to your emotions. It's not our place to say when we're reading something, well, that might be okay for some people, but it's definitely not the case for me. Or that's not the way I see it. Or the author just doesn't understand my situation. It's not our place to say that. Instead, we need to agree that God's ways are higher than ours. And just think about God's wisdom in the design for salvation. If we were to design salvation, we would design a salvation system that would require us to do lots of things to appease and satisfy a holy God, right? That's what sounds right. That's what seems right. We're people who want to accomplish things. We would do that. We would set it forth. But God knows that a righteous and holy God would never be satisfied by the, the efforts of sinful man. And so we can be dependent on God to design a right design for our salvation. Thankfully, God knows better than we do as it relates to satisfying his standard of perfect righteousness. So if we can trust God's wisdom when it comes to the, the, the design for salvation, shouldn't we trust God's wisdom in every other page of Scripture? And this is what God 
this is really helpful. Write down Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is the kind of person that God looks to and seeks to pursue. God says, to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God looks at the one who is humble and puts his own ideas underneath the ideas of Scripture, subjects his own thoughts to the thoughts and the truth of Scripture, and then contrite of spirit. He's broken when spirit, when the word speaks against him. The other thing we need to do is trust in the sufficiency of God's word. Second Peter chapter 1 is really, really, really good. Peter is writing to an audience that has been dispersed uh, throughout the Mediterranean region. He's writing and he says, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We're probably all familiar with this verse. But how has God given us what we need? How has God given us everything we need? He's given us everything we need through a true knowledge of him. And where do we find God's revelation of himself? We find it in the words of scripture. No place other than in his word. So we can have confidence that scripture is sufficient to give us everything we need to live a life that is pleasing to him. Absolutely, there's good in extra biblical literature. It's very, very good to do lots and lots of extra biblical reading. But if you need help repenting from sin, if you need help restoring or reconciling a friendship that has gone sour, if you need help growing in your affections for God, first and foremost, look to scripture. God has given you the wisdom for doing these things right in his word. Use scripture as your foundation. Seventh is read the full counsel of scripture. Second Timothy chapter three. We're going to look at verses 10 to 17. I won't read all of it. Context here is that Paul is counseling Timothy regarding threats to his gospel ministry when he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And what will give Timothy the fortitude and stability in the midst of all of these trials is God's word. Timothy has the task of following Paul as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul spent three years with them and Timothy took over and he was leading that church. And Paul is saying, you're going to need the word to lead these people. And we're going to look at what kind of and what reach of the word Paul is referring to. Verses 1 through 9 help us understand that difficult times are going to come for Timothy. If you look at verses 11 to 13, Paul describes the opposition to his ministry in chapter 3. If you look at verse 10, Paul tells us about something. He says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and my sufferings. Paul says, you followed my teaching. A lot of that teaching was in Paul's first letter to Timothy. This is Paul's second letter to Timothy. He's saying, you followed my teaching. If we jump ahead to verse 14, Paul says, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. These are the things that Timothy learned from Paul and Paul's writing to him and his teaching of him in person. But in verse 15, we see that Timothy was well-versed in the Old Testament. We understand from other parts of Paul's letters to Timothy that that, that help came from his mother and from his grandmother. That's where Paul is referring to the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. 
And so when you look at verse 16, the verse we know so well, it starts with all. What Paul is talking about there is the New Testament revelation, the New Testament teachings, as well as the Old Testament. Paul knew that he was writing scripture when he wrote to Timothy. He's saying that as well as the sacred writings are the things that are profitable for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness. So what's Paul's point here? His point is that a person is completely equipped for the events of the life that the Lord has prepared for them when they're informed with the complete counsel of Scripture. So read all of your Bible. Because all of it is useful to teach you. It's how to teach you to discern what is right. It's helpful to reproof where you can discern what is not right. It's helpful for correction, instruction on how to get right. And it's helpful for training, instruction on how to stay right. So what's right, what's not right, how to get right and how to stay right, the truth of that is found in Scripture. All of Scripture. Which is really good, and a really good segue here to a reading plan. If you're not on a reading plan, um, I encourage you to get on a reading plan. A reading plan that will take you through all of the counsel of Scripture. And it doesn't matter whether it takes you through Scripture in six months or six years. Read the full counsel of Scripture. It will grow your love for God, your affection for God. It will grow your perspective on the New Testament, the more you read in the Old Testament, and uh, all of those things. So it's a blessing. Um, Does the Wellspring Notebook include several different reading plan options when you get it? Okay. Yeah, if you don't have a reading plan, get that. I like the the Discipleship Journal reading plan because it gives you seven days at the end of every month to get caught up. Mm -hmm. It's really good. You feel good about yourself. All right, last one. Do you uh, notice you're reading in your Bible, and man, there are a lot of genealogies, and there are a lot of lists of names. And in the Old Testament, you're like, oh man, I've got eight chapters of First Chronicles to get through some names and some tribes here. This is tough, because I don't have a map, and I don't have these names, and I don't have a chart. It's really important to understand that God has a purpose. He had a purpose for the original audience, but he also has a purpose for people who are going to come centuries and millennia later. So let's go take a look at the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 1, and we're going to look at Luke 3. And this is really, really helpful. There's two genealogies. And you say to yourself, well, well, why would God include two genealogies of the same thing, the two family lines? We're going to find out. Okay, so consider the audience whenever you're reading. Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, right? He's writing to a, a Jewish audience, and his purpose is to show them that Jesus has the legal credentials to be the Messiah. Legally, he has what it takes to be the Messiah. And in Israel, legal rights were carried through the father. Okay, so we're going to learn that, that the legal right from one generation comes from the father of the previous generation. So Matthew starts with Abraham. You can see that at the beginning of his genealogy, right? And he moves through David in verse 6. Go down to verse 6, you see David. And then you see Solomon that comes after that. And eventually you get to Joseph in verse 16. Notice a couple of things. Uh, Joseph's family line runs through David and and Solomon, but that Joseph's father's name was Jacob. Hold that thought, because we're going to need to keep that in mind. So Jesus gets his legal right to the throne, starting with David, through Solomon, and on down. In Jewish law, one can only sit on the throne, not only if he has the legal right, but he actually needs to be a blood descendant of the king. That's a problem because Joseph was not Jesus' earthly father. Holy Spirit 
was the one that conceived Mary. That's why Luke writes. So let's go over to Luke's gospel, chapter 3. When you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is very Joseph-centric at the beginning. Joseph has the vision. Joseph's at night. Joseph takes his family to Egypt. When you read Luke's gospel, it's all about Mary. That's the story of Mary being visited by the angel. That's the story of Mary's conception. Mary goes to see her cousin and so forth. A couple of observations. When you look at Mary, uh, Luke's genealogy, Matthew's goes forward, but Luke's genealogy goes backwards, right? It moves backwards from Mary to David. You see in verse 23, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. Where does Mary fit into this? We don't see Mary's name in this genealogy. What's going on? Well, remember that Jewish genealogies are recorded through the fathers. Okay, so we understand that Luke is working backwards from Mary through her father, Heli, all the way back to Adam. If you read 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 5, that lists the four sons that David has by Bathsheba. One of those we know is Solomon. Another one of them is Nathan. And if you read the, the description here, as you go backwards through the genealogy of Jesus via Mary, you can see that you get to David through Nathan. Nathan, and then Solomon, and then David. And I forgot to write down the verse of that in Luke chapter 3. I think it's, um, oh, it's verse 31. Is that right? Or wherever. Okay, 31. So what you have here in this genealogy is Jesus, the proof that Jesus is a blood descendant of David. David, Solomon, Nathan, a bunch of other guys. You get to Heli, Mary's father, Mary, and then you get to Jesus. So we have two genealogies here. One says Jesus has the legal right to be the king. And the other one that goes backwards says Jesus has the blood right to be the king. And that's pretty exciting when you think about that. That was pretty impressive and pretty conclusive to loose reading audience. Matthew had one concern. We have to prove that Jesus has a legal right to sit on the throne. They don't want a bogus. They don't want a fake Messiah. But we also want a Messiah who has the blood right. And Jesus absolutely had the blood right. You know, when I get to First Chronicles in my, my reading plan, I have to do some heart shepherding. There's eight chapters of names and tribes and places in First Chronicles. And what's really, really helpful, and I want you to turn here, turn to First Chronicles chapter 8. It tells you something that is so important when you read this. You have First and Second Kings, and then you have First and Second Chronicles. They have a lot of the same information. There's a lot of kings' names that are repeated. You'll notice that First and Second Kings describe kings in the northern kingdom and kings in the southern kingdom. But you'll notice that Chronicles only describes kings in the southern kingdom. And there's a reason for that. And that is because if you go to First Chronicles chapter 8, you understand that First Chronicles and Second Chronicles were written after the exile. They're written after the exile. These are people, that, so the listening audience here is people who have spent very little, if any, time in Israel before they returned to Israel. Very, very few people who returned from exile were actually in Israel before the exile because the exile was 70 years and not a lot of old people made it back. Some did, but not many. God knew it was very important that they knew exactly who their relatives were. 
And so he goes into gory detail about their relatives to prove to them, this is who your ancestors are. And God is very intent in having them understand that his promise to bring them a Messiah through the family line of David was still intact. And so First and Second Chronicles, you, you won't be reading a lot about kings in the northern kingdom because its, its target audience is only the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom that contains the tribe of Jesus. So God could help them understand that his promises were still intact. So God is saying, even though I just exiled you, you are still my people and I will bring you a redeemer and he is coming through the family line of your father, David. So keep that in mind when you get to those eight chapters and you think, okay, I need to buckle up here. So those are eight principles for using self-control when you read God's word. Um, it's very important to prepare your heart before you read God's word. It's very important to use self-control while reading God's word. And it's very important to counsel your heart after you read God's word. We touched on this a little bit before, but you really need to ask yourself two basic questions. And the first is, how has my reading informed my thoughts towards God? Am I growing in my impression of God? Am I growing in my reverence for God, my awe of God? Am I growing in my affections for God through the reading of his word? The second question we really need to ask yourself is, how has my reading informed my obedience to God? I understand more about what is expected of me. I understand more about why that's expected of me. I understand more about how obedience is related to my love in John 15, John 14, John 16. So just be asking yourself, take a minute when you're reading your Bible, when you're done with your reading, to ask yourself, how am I growing in my reverence for God? How am I growing in my obedience to God? How do I need to grow because of this? Okay, that's all I have. Let me pray. Lord, I'm thankful for these dear women. I'm thankful that you brought them here this morning. I'm thankful for their families, for their children, for their parents, for their husbands. Lord, I'm thankful that, that your word is true. I'm thankful that your word is clear. Lord, I pray for myself together with my dear friends here. I pray that when we read your word, you would grow us in our affections for you, our reverence for you our desire to obey you. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.